This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, today I was getting ready and I had this thought. I thought, Corey, why have you not had Andre Henry back on the podcast? And I didn't have a good answer for myself. So <laughs> I reached out to Andre and I said, Andre, would you come back on the podcast? Because people just love to hear you. I love to hear you. I consider Andre a mentor in anti-racism work. I don't know if I've said that to you before, but I do. No. <laughs> so, uh, so I just wanted to have a conversation, another conversation with Andre, because I think that's a treat for all of us that are listening. So, Andre, thanks for being willing, man, to to come back on and and talk to the folks of Existential. Yeah, of course. Yeah, man. So, yeah, okay, thanks for me back. Yeah, well, here's here's what what I'm really interested in talking about. Yesterday, I saw you say on Twitter, I think it was, or a couple of days ago, um, that 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 particular day you felt like a Christian. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know that you are, you are, you are a black man. You're an activist and from time to time a Christian, but I like, I, I, understand, <laughs> I, I understand what you mean when you say that I get it. Like, so can you just speak to that? Like, like why that third? Why title? I said on um, particular that day, I felt yes. like a Christian. Yeah, why that day? And what? Why other days do you not feel like it? Because I, I think I understand what what you're yeah. getting at. Yeah. Well. All right. You know, I'm always gonna be like, okay. Well, so you gotta you gotta understand this first. So. <laughs> 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 I think I get that from my dad. My dad is always like, so you gotta understand something. <laughs> actually, first, I think you gotta get this. I think it might be a Jamaican thing, actually, because Jamaicans always like stop and ask if you understand, right? They're like, <laughs> they're always like, you understand, you know? <laughs> I was want to just pause for a second, get make sure you track it. So anyway, so we, you know, and folks who are familiar with our work know, but you know, for those of you who don't, um. I used to be such a church boy, like mm-hmm. just the churchiest of boys. Um, I started going to church when I was very young. I identified as a Christian as a very young age, and I was involved in every part of church that existed. Like if I mm-hmm. found out that that the church doors were open on a day <laughs> that I was not already there. <laughs> You best believe I'm gonna find some reason to be involved in that program. So, you know, I went to Bible college. I I was in ministry for many years, full time ministry. Um, I went to seminary after being in ministry for seven years, uh, full time ministry for seven years. And I don't anymore, really. I don't really go to church very mm-hmm. often. I don't I don't read the Bible like I used to. Which is a huge thing. I mean, the Bible, I mean, that's my jam, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it it was. I'm not anti-Bible now. I just don't, I just, when I open the Bible now, it's so different from when I used to open the Bible when I was a church boy. Yeah. Because now I have the experience that most people have when they read the Bible, which is they get bored. 
And when I was a church boy, I didn't even understand that. I'm like, what? How, what do you mean boring? <laughs> what do you mean like, boring? What do you mean? People getting thrown to fed to lions and stuff. People like, you got superheroes like Samson in there. Exactly. You know, Jesus is walking on water and turning water into booze and coming back yeah. from the dead and stuff yeah. like that. What's yeah. boring in there? You got you got naked women bathing on the on the roof and kings yes. watching them. I mean, you got I mean, this yes. is basically Game of Thrones. What you're talking yes. about? Yes, you have a very sexy book of the Bible in the Old Testament too. It's just like so. I mean, it's so sexy that like young Jewish boys weren't allowed to read it until they were a certain mm-hmm. age. So. I used yeah. to not understand how people could be bored with the Bible. Although, as I say that, I do remember the first time I ever read through the Bible. I was a church boy, and I got to like the second half of the book of Exodus, and I was like, "This is terrible." Like, <laughs> I don't know who has who has ever read this section of the Bible and why, because it's just like a bunch of old ancient Near Eastern measurements. I don't know what a cubit is. What is a cubit? (laughs) What is the conversion rate of a cubit into whatever the name of the system that we use in America? Because it's not the metric system. So as I say that, I I did get bored sometimes. But generally speaking, I read the Bible every day and just loved it. And I just have a very different experience with it now. Okay, so how did that happen? The whole point of me telling you the the contrast was to set the stage for the story. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Now, I would rather spend Sunday reading Gandhi's autobiography over brunch or catching Mm. up with friends than going to church. And how that happened was in 2016, actually between 2015 and 2017, I came face to face with how racist Mm -hmm. so many of... um, the Christians that I had known growing up are. Mm. I didn't realize how deeply entrenched whiteness and anti-blackness was embedded into the imaginations and minds of the people that I used to worship with, Mm. some of the people that I used to follow and call mentors, and in the very uh, tradition of Christianity that I was involved in myself, which is evangelicalism. So I'd grown up among evangelicals. I worshiped among evangelicals. I learned theology from evangelicals. I led evangelicals in worship. I preached to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I, I probably, I could have become one of those, you know, evangelical thought leaders. I could have become a par- prominent figure and as a token black evangelical Mm -hmm. figure. I I could have taken that trajectory. But the Black Lives Matter movement revealed the the racism of that world to me in in a way that I just, I mean, I fought against, you know, I Mm -hmm. thought, I thought that the reason why the moderate evangelicals that I was around were not supporting the Black Lives Matter movement back then was because of ignorance. I thought they just didn't mm. see how mm. uh, how bad the racism problem is in America. And to an extent, that is true, I think. I, I think there is, a, I think there is a, a point to where they don't see it. Mm-hmm. But I have since learned that Racism does not come from ignorance, Mm. but that ignorance comes from racism. 
Racial mm. ignorance comes from racism. Wow. So you, you have all of these narratives, these anti-Black narratives, these anti-Black stories that we tell, right? And those anti-Black narratives take the place of actual knowledge. The mm. white people think that they know Black people because they know a bunch of, anti, because they know a bunch of anti-Black stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And they think that that's knowledge, right? So anyway, I learned that it wasn't just ignorance that was keeping the people uh, away from the truth about America's racism, but that some of the people that I was around, that I associated with, some that I called family, mm-hmm. they actually believed those ideas. Yeah, I learned that many... Um, of the evangelicals that I called family that I loved actually understood on some level that to be white means to be advantaged in the society and Mm -hmm. to have a certain amount of power, whether or not they could articulate that or whether they believed that there was something uh, primal, something intuitive Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I think that they understood and they, they would fight back because at the end of the day, they don't want for the status quo to change. And so here I am beginning to speak up about racism every day and saying the status quo has to change in order for us to be a just and fair society like we claim that we are. And they push back against that, right? So I, I saw, uh, and this is most obvious in the election of Donald Trump, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, because exactly. we know that Donald Trump was elected because of racial anxieties. We know that Donald Trump was elected on a platform of white people being afraid of their own annihilation and in the Mm -hmm. annihilation of their culture, right? And 81% of white evangelicals voted for him. So that was one way that that I was like, oh, this is not about them being ignorant. This is actually, some of them know what's going on, even if they refuse to put two and two together Mm -hmm. or if they refuse to know that about themselves. I mean, it's it's interesting because now I'm saying they didn't know, but they know, which could get us into a much deeper conversation about knowledge and how we know things yeah. and what's what attention, counts as, what counts yeah. as knowledge, right? Yeah. Which we won't, but <laughs> but but that's a good that's a good little rabbit trail for someone to chase. Like just because, okay, okay, I'm gonna do it a little bit though. So, you have to. Just because someone says something to you, someone states a fact to you, does not mean that you know the fact just because it you heard it, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, there's there are questions that need to be asked. Like at what point do you know it? Do you know it when you accept it to be true? You, you get what I'm saying? Do you yeah, know absolutely. it because you've investigated it? So yeah. that's what that's why I'm saying. Like on one level, I think that they actually do know because they have this reaction in their bodies to the things that Black activists say. Yeah. And to me, that betrays a certain level of knowledge. But there's a, the other type of knowledge, the more common type of knowledge that we talk about, which means that you have this information in your head, you can articulate it, you, you assent to it you know, intellectually. Wow. And I wow. don't think that they have that kind, not everyone has that kind of knowledge. So anyway... There are folks that made it very clear that whether they can articulate it in that kind of conscious knowledge kind of way, that in their gut, they knew that the things that I was saying, many other Black Lives Matter activists were saying, was a threat to the status quo from which they benefit, or else they wouldn't be fighting so hard to preserve it. Mm. 
The other part, not just the power part, and I think that this could be a much shorter section of what I'm trying to say, <laughs> constructing what I'm saying, is that um, I learned that some white people participate in anti-Black violence because they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Over the years, I've learned that. I didn't realize that at the time, but for instance, there was one... Um, Okay, maybe maybe I'll tell two stories. But one was the morning after the election of Donald Trump, I posted online that I am devastated. That's it. I am devastated. Now, you could have inferred that I was talking about Donald Trump's election. That's that's a fair assumption. However, you know, I also could have been talking about anything else. I could have exactly. just made a smoothie and spilt the whole thing on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> which which is devastating. For anybody who's ever done that. Yeah. I mean, especially if it's your last, like your last smoothie. Like I I only get one one delivery of those every week. <laughs> I drop the last one, the whole thing. I can't even I, I could have been talking about that. So anyway, all that to say, someone that I regarded as family, a white evangelical that I regarded as like a younger brother shows up and it's like, well, the other option was a criminal, LOL. And I'm like, that's very interesting mm. to me that you would write laugh out loud in response to someone that you have relationship with who's just expressed that they are devastated in public. Whether you mm. agree on this or not about Donald Trump, right? Whether or not you're a Trump supporter or not, you have someone that you call family in public grief. And your first response is not to reach out to them and say, hey, I don't understand, but are you okay? Exactly. Hey, yeah. Hey, I love you, and I'm seeing this completely differently from you, and I want to understand. Like to me, I and this is what I talk about that love often manifests itself in curiosity. Curiosity is an act of love, right? So, but there is no curiosity. And since there's no curiosity, there's also no empathy, right? So mm-hmm. anyway. The, the laugh out loud response was just interesting. So I, I responded in saying, first off, my lament is not an invitation to a debate. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm not laughing right now. Mm-hmm. And his response was another smug response with an LOL. So now we've established, if you didn't notice that I was expressing public grief at first, which I don't see how you wouldn't. But if you didn't, I've responded in such a way that has said, I am lamenting right now. And you did it again. Okay. So now you're just somebody who's poking me. And when I say, Hey, don't poke me, you're poking me again. And now you're giggling about poking me because you know that I don't like it. And so you're poking me again because it brings you some kind of pleasure for me Mm. to say, no, stop it. Now, when I, when I responded to that saying, okay, that's your second warning, he goes off again, another smug comment, LOL. This is part of what I mean by um, white people enjoy, you know, mm-hmm. some white people enjoy participating in anti-Black violence. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that might seem like a minor mistake. You know, I hear people online like, Andre's so fragile. He has, <laughs> he has feelings and he shows them. He has the nerve to call out things that are inappropriate, <laughs> right? Okay, I sometimes I use the most minuscule, like the minute 
little manifestations of these things. Because first off, I think that you have to cut these things off at the root. You have to to see how the murder of George Floyd is also connected to that little seed of the light that white people get from hurting black people, right? Okay, so let's move on to another one then. Since that one is kind of minor, it's just a Facebook, you know, exchange, you know. All right, second story. This guy was a college classmate of mine while I was speaking up about racism. First off, people are going to be like, you ask Andre one question and 20 <laughs> minutes later. That's the best. Those are the best podcast guests, bro. You just, you know, you just be like, one question. Oh, you I got ask Andre one, one, one question and you're still talking about that one concept 20 <laughs> minutes later. Okay. Partly because Andre cannot stay on subject. He keeps taking the rabbit trail. Anyway, second story. College classmate of mine, he reaches out to me because I had been I had been doing this for about a year, maybe maybe a year and a half or something like that. And so he reaches out, hey Andre, and I'm like, I haven't heard from this dude in ten years, so um, mm, so I'm ca- I'm cautiously like, hello, former white classmate whom I had barely any relationship <laughs> with in college and I've not spoken to in ten years. Um, which is his actual name. It's on his birth certificate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, So I'm talking to former white classmate who I barely had a relationship with in college and haven't spoken to in 10 years. And he says, after hello, he basically says, well, I was kind of holding my peace about this and hoping that the waters would cool down. But seeing as how it's not, I just need to tell you, Oh, that boy. you are being hateful, you are you've abandoned the gospel, you're not keeping the, the greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And so my response was, what do you want to accomplish from this exchange? Because I love asking people that question. Because mm-hmm. hopefully they will find they're on some kind of fool's errand and they'll leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> if, if I can if I can ask you what do you want to accomplish here and you don't have an answer, then maybe you shouldn't be bothering me, right? Right, right. His response is, well, I hoped to have like a conversation where I could point out to you some of the problems with your ethical formulations and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, so he came here to teach. He didn't come here for a dialogue. He didn't come here to learn anything or to understand. He came here to school me. Mm. I try to say to him, do you understand just how condescending that comes off? Like, you're just going to you're just going to come in and school me and so i'm already seeing um at this time over the now this we're back in time we're like in 2016 right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. i'm seeing with these two interactions and all and many of the others that we just don't have time to get into that white people enter these conversations with already already assuming that they have more information than you they have yes. a clearer perspective than you They can explain to you the experiences of your life and what's happening in society with Black people and why Black people suffer disproportionately compared to white people better than you can, even though they've never lived one day as a Black person, they've not studied the subject of racism at all, and they've not lifted one finger to intentionally actually oppose any type of systemic racial violence in their entire lives. And yet, they just assume that they know more than you, right? Just instinctively. We have jargon for that. It's called a white superiority complex. And that's what these well-meaning white people who 
do not know in a conscious way, or they refuse to know because they have a certain image of themselves, and to know that they are also deeply controlled by racist ideas would conflict too much with that self-image for them to bear facing it or confronting it, and so they pretend not to know or they keep themselves from knowing by never asking themselves the question. So... They enter these conversations. I'm just going to blow by that one, too. (laughs) They enter the conversation already expressing the superiority that they refuse to know that they have, right? Mm -hmm. I try to illuminate this for them, and they refuse to see it. In fact, I am a racist for telling them that they have already approached this conversation as though they assume that they're superior. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Mm -hmm. this conversation is going nowhere in this Facebook uh exchange this is in the direct messages by the way he direct messages me on facebook and so we arranged to set a time for a video call back in the day i used to set up times to talk with racists one-on-one <laughs> like oh for they're, free oh for they're, free. For free. Yeah, they're like free. they're like okay so they open their mouths and it's like rainbow racist vomit just racism 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 right just just <laughs> just flying out of their mouth right and i'm like Oh, poor thing. Poor thing. You're controlled by some anti-black ideas. Maybe I can help you. You know, maybe maybe we should humanize this exchange exchange and talk in a kind of face-to-face manner. And yeah, I can explain to you what you're missing, right? Ah, uh, and this is one of those stories that taught me that this doesn't really work. For, right. for black people talking to white people because, see, white people can have these conversations and they come out thinking like, well, why don't you just talk to them? And I'm like, well, another thing you're forgetting is that white people are just more open to listening to other white people. But when it comes to black people, they have trouble learning from us. So anyway, mm-hmm. for sure, uh, this guy and I get on a video chat and we're talking and I'm like, what is so heretical about what I'm saying to you? Uh, he, he goes, well, it goes against the traditions of the church, da 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 which basically means that, you know, the white dead theologians that he followed didn't have anything to say about racism. (laughs) Right? Like, So, yeah, the ones who own slaves also. Right, yeah. Or advocates of slavery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those those guys. Exactly, yeah. The the white slave-holding theologians that he followed or or those who um, those who didn't oppose slavery or had nothing to say about anti-black violence, oh, they don't talk about it, so therefore it's heretical. So anyway, we're talking, and it comes out of his mouth, looking me in the face without any kind of irony. He says, uh, racism is not a priority to God. And I was kind of stunned because I did not expect that. Now, I, I was still in this point where I really believed the best about mm. having these kinds of conversations across racial lines with white people. I, I didn't think that it was like something deeply entrenched. I thought it was just misunderstanding and ignorance. So he says this. And remember, I'm talking about delight. The reason why I'm going, and I know this is the scenic route to the point, but <laughs> I, I, know, I just think that everybody needs to, it's, you know. It's a beautiful scene, though. It's beautiful it, scenery. I mean, you know, track with me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, we you gotta love, we love to see it. <laughs> we love to we love to see all the sights along the way, right? <laughs> just pointing out things as we go. Anyway, so the reason why I bring up delight in this second example is because you would have had to been there to see the way that he would sit back in this kind of smug satisfaction that was written all over his face when he mm-hmm. would say things like that. Racism is not a priority to God. Racism is not a priority to God. Can you see? Can you imagine mm-hmm. how my head was moving when I just said it in that mm-hmm. pattern? Racism is not a priority to God. 
Mm. Right. The other thing that he said to me that was really uh, interesting. Okay, so he's saying these things are heretical, right? And he says that thing about, you know, racism. And I'm like, well, what about Dr. King? Like, he's a pastor, he's a Christian, and he he spent his entire life organizing against uh, racial injustice. He goes, well, you're not sounding like Dr. King. You're starting to sound like Malcolm X. And then he he sits back really satisfied with himself, really just... With this, this is what I'm talking about. Delight. He is not there to learn. He is not there to listen. He is there to wound me if he can, mm. right? Mm. So the thing that I'm trying to point out is that this man, he is so compelled by his need to be white, his need to feel like he is superior, his need to police what black people think and say about God. Because I wasn't talking to him. He showed up in my direct messages talking about, I need to come in here and defend the entire Christian faith from you. Right. Mm. So he is uh, so compelled by these ideas and by this instinct that what he is trying to do. And I hope that people can feel the weight of this. What he's trying to do is literally take away whatever hope I have that there is a God that will intervene on the behalf of people like me in the midst of structures and systems that were built to cause me harm. He literally wants to take my good news and stomp all over it. He wants to take Mm -hmm. away hope from me. And while he's doing it, any time he thinks that he's might that he that he's made a, a step forward in progress of robbing me of whatever gospel I can hold on to he sits back and he congratulates himself mm. now he's not winning because when he said that thing about Malcolm X I was like come on Mason I don't even care I'm gonna say his name his name is Mason <laughs> He said the thing about Malcolm X. I'm like, all right, Mason, let's be real. You've never read one thing that Malcolm X has ever written, and you've not listened to any of his speeches. So the fact that you are trying to shame me, right? He's trying to shame me with the name of a Black man that he's not even paid any attention to is meaningless Mm. to me. Mm. But I see what you're doing, right? So this is the thing. Like People love to be like, Andre is so fragile, right? Because, (laughs) but I'm like, just because I recognize when somebody swings at me does not mean that I'm hurt. Mm. Just because you just because you take a swing at me does not mean that your punch landed. Doesn't mean that I'm actually hurt. Doesn't mean that I'm actually wounded. I'm just smart enough to know. It's not, it's not even smart, right? I'm just, I just have eyes. I can see when somebody swings at me. And what you're doing right now in your in your telling me that I'm not really a Christian, that I'm not following the gospel, that I've abandoned the the, the greatest commandment, that I sound like the bad black man to you, because Malcolm X is not the bad black man to me, but I know what it means to you when you just go into Dr. King and you say that I'm ba- basically a badly behaved Negro. I mm-hmm. see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason. There's no reason other than it would bring him pleasure. This is exactly why the other dude is in my uh, Facebook thread the day after, the morning after Trump is elected, you know, LOLing at my public lament. And this dude is, you're starting to sound like Malcolm X, you know, mm. sitting back like he just, like mm. he discovered the theory of relativity or something. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that that reminds me, man, of this passage of scripture in John chapter ten. John, mm-hmm. I think it's ten, 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 eleven, whatever, where the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I remember, mm-hmm. I remember seeing that, and everybody referring to that as talking about the devil, which is a, would, which would be random if it's talking about the devil because it came out of nowhere. But it's literally talking about people who are doing exactly what you're describing. Jesus is referring to people who do harm to people with religion, people who use religion to do harm to the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, to the people who God reaches out to the most, that there are people who come to still kill and destroy those people. And that's what both of these incidents were for you. And let me tell you, I have, I'm not going to tell all the stories, but I have story after story after story of white evangelical males, many of them pastors, Mm. who from the period of 2015 to 2017, especially, would continue to just show up for no other reason than to say, in one way or another, God is not interested in saving Black people from the mm. violence of whites or from the violence of white supremacy. Mm. And I, I say this again just because I'm not sure how it lands on people. But imagine, imagine that someone is um, at the altar on Sunday morning and they have a son or daughter who is stricken with cancer and it's, it's very severe and aggressive and they're just asking God to intervene please heal my child. And someone else decides not to mind their own business, Mm -hmm. decides that they need to go over to that person while they are praying for help from God in the situation to say, well, you know, God doesn't heal all the time. You know, sometimes sometimes people pray for God, God to do things, and then he doesn't. You know, people (laughs) die from cancer all the time, right? Basically saying, like, you are trying to steal their gospel. You are trying to kill their hope. You are trying to destroy their, you know, th- their their hope, like I said. So mm-hmm. that is what these people kept doing. Okay, so this is back to the original question. It only took us 30 minutes to get here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that is why, you know, I started feeling like, well, maybe Christianity really is for white people because I only knew that version of Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I only knew the version of Christianity that I grew up with among these people who I did not know thought that if they ask God for a parking spot at Publix, that God will find it for them. But if I ask God to stop a bullet mm-hmm. from killing a mentally ill black man in Northwest Pasadena, that God will not do it, that God doesn't care, that God's not interested in that, that God's not interested in the, in the economic wage gap between Black and, and white people, that God is not interested in ending police brutality, that God is not interested in ending discrimination in housing and health care, that God is not interested in the disproportionate deaths of Black people because of COVID-19, which we were made vulnerable to because of the racist technology of voter suppression, like that God doesn't care about those things, but God cares about all the things that white people care about. I had to sit up one morning and think, 
Well, you know what? God actually didn't stop a bullet for for, for Philando Castile and did not stop those uh, Pasadena officers from killing J.R. Thomas or from choking George Floyd or Eric Garner to death or for breaking down Breonna Taylor's door or mm. busting into her house mm. and, and shooting her and mm. thinking, well, you know what? For a moment, it sometimes it does seem like, you know what? We pray a lot for God to intervene and then God doesn't, right? And so that mm. is enough to work on your faith. But then at the same time, I have these white people saying like, well, you know, God doesn't care about you. And so there were two things. It was me wrestling with theodicy, basically, how come so much injustice can happen in the world and then God not be there? And usually my theological way out of that is to remember that in the Psalms, it says that God has made the heavens. God lives in the heavens, but God has given the earth to human beings to rule, right? And you see that echoed in Genesis 1. So uh, if there is so much injustice in the world, a lot of it has to do with the decisions that we're making, that we've been given this world to manage and to rule over, and we are not doing it well, which is also Mm. why in Psalm 82, God walks into this procession of, you know, it says God walks among the gods, but the gods in that uh, chapter are symbolic of the leaders of Israel. So God walks into this meeting of the leaders of Israel and basically says, what are y'all doing? Like, take care of the poor and the and the fatherless and the orphans and all the stuff, right? So that's usually my way out of it. But still, you still have to wrestle with those questions. How could there be a good, all-knowing, all-powerful God and there be so much evil in the world? Yes. So that was one thing. It's hard to hold on to. But then, like, dealing with so many Christians who say, one, I'm not a Christian because I believe that God cares about racial justice, and two, that they claim to be Christians and not care about racial justice. And I it, I don't know, like I just started struggling with like, maybe I'm not a Christian because all these Christians tell me that I'm not, right? Mm. Um, even though I know that there are deep and rich traditions of Black liberation theology, of Black Christianity and all that kind of stuff. I didn't grow up in a Black church. I didn't grow up in a tradition where uh, they were preaching messages that had to do with any type of social justice, right? So. Mm-hmm. In my body, <laughs> the mm-hmm. only Christianity that I know is the Christianity that I that I set behind me, right? That I left, and mm-hmm. I I didn't know how to wrestle with that. So a, a bit of it is also like to learn to be a different kind of Christian. It it's some work, right? To deconstruct these things, to heal from the religious trauma, and all of that. It it takes some work. So that yeah, I think that's why the Christian part is hard. The activist part is easier to hold on to mm-hmm. than the Christian part. The black part, you ain't got no choice but that because, like, you could, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you can, can deny it if you want, but but the, the society is going to remind you that you are black. Exactly. Yeah, man. So you know, you sound like Langston Langston Hughes, um, who wrote a piece um, that that I guess he later regretted. I was actually just reading about it this morning, um, where he talked about like basically asking Jesus to go away <laughs> because he felt this same, the same thing that you're describing, this like idea, especially for, for the time period that he's in, that there are lynchings of black bodies, which uh, I don't know why I said the time period he's in, because we're still seeing lynching, lynchings. Oh, of black yeah. Bodies. Oh, yeah. But we're, we're watching the lynching of black bodies. We're watching all of the oppression that black folks still suffer in America. And most recently, we've seen 
how how many white Christians were up in arms because Sean King merely suggested that we get back to a Jewish Jesus, which is right. what Jesus right. actually historically is, and right. that we tear down statues of white Jesus, that that was even problematic. And so I understand any black person who says, go away, Jesus, yeah. from, the, from the vantage point of saying, if what you guys are bringing to me in America, mm-hmm. if, if you're telling me that, 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 that your God doesn't care about racism, your God doesn't care about George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, your God doesn't care that, that to the, at, at the moment of this recording, uh, no one has been charged with the murder of Breonna Taylor, right. then of course it makes sense to me that any black Christian would say, I don't want any parts of that God because that God is not for me. That God right. doesn't care about me. Right. Right. That's exactly what I was like. I was supposed to be at church that morning when I was really wrestling with this. This is 2016. And I was like, you know what? Like, if y'all are telling me that, like I said, God is more likely to provide you a parking space at the grocery store than God is to you know, help us in police brutality, then that much that must mean that God is a cosmic white middle class American. And because God only cares about your white middle class American issues and problems. And that means that God must be made up. You know, y'all, y'all had to have invented that God. Regardless, I'm not interested in. I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to church to be a second class worshiper. You know why? Yeah, why? And and there was like there was that was the mentality that that early white Christians in America wanted black folks to accept is that accept your lot in life. Exactly. That you are, le- that you are less than us. You are exactly. You you are not fully human. So of course God wants you to be subject to us. Follow us as God. Exactly. And exactly. now today, all these years later, you said something earlier that I think is really interesting, and I hadn't really heard it from that vantage point. You know, I've had a couple people on, on the podcast talk about the body keeps score and, and how we yeah. carry ancestral trauma. But oh, you yeah. Talk, you talked about white folks carrying ancestral knowledge, and I think that's really interesting because we can try to tell certain white folks about their own implicit bias, about the white supremacy that their theology is stooped in, but they're, they're, the other knowledge that they have in their body is warring against them. Like, kind of like what Paul was talking about in Romans 6, where like there's this war within white folks, I guess, probably naturally, that like they have a knowledge that, that is ancestral, that made slaves, that created slaves, that lynched black folks, that is also combating the knowledge of liberation of black folks, even, even, when they, even if they may want to. Right. Well, I I don't know where the knowledge comes from. I don't know if it's ancestral, right? But what I do know is look at these videos of these white women. Well, we know Amy Cooper was made famous recently because of how she called the police on the the black man who told her that her dog should be on a leash yeah. in that area of Central Park because that is actually the policy there, right? Right. And that got Emmett Till killed, and that started Black Wall Street, by the way. That the same action. She said to him, basically, she started quoting Bane from uh, is that the Dark Knight? Yeah. <laughs> you remember you remember when you remember when Bane was like, Oh, you think the darkness is your ally? 
I was born in it. Oh, you merely adopted it. I was born in it. Molded by it. Right? You remember that? <laughs> yes. Amy, Amy said, oh, you think you're going to police me? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got yeah. some policing for you. I got some policing for that ass. I'm going to call 911. <laughs> and I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man here that's threatening my life. Right? This is what I mean by knowledge. Amy Cooper will, lay, will later on say that she is not a racist. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, she utilized her position in the racial hierarchy against his. Reflexively, she did it. Mm-hmm. Right? So I wrote, I wrote a piece in Medium about that, saying that, you know, she says that she was afraid. But she was not acting out of fear. She was acting out of wisdom, which is actually the biblical concept of wisdom. I didn't, I didn't say it was biblical because, you know... I don't want people to think of me as a public theologian, but apparently I have no choice. So fine. Why fight it? Why fight it? So fine. Fine. (laughs) Fine. I was theologizing, but I wasn't, I was doing it on the back end. So anyway, I pulled that because in Exodus, it says that Bazael and Aholiab, the ones who built uh, or they embroidered the curtains for the tabernacle, this is that boring part of Exodus I was talking about earlier. Remember, I was like, God, mm-hmm. like, I was mm-hmm. slugging through it. I, mm-hmm. I came across Bazazel or Bazael, however you say his name, and Aholiab. I was appealing to a biblical uh, concept of, of wisdom because like in, in the later half of Exodus, it talks about these two guys who were skilled at embroidery. But the way that the Bible says it is that they had wisdom for the arts, they had wisdom to embroider because the biblical concept of wisdom is basically applied knowledge. You know something and you're applying it in, in, in regular terms, it's still kind of jargony, but we would call it praxis, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's the combination of theory and action where those actions have the theory embedded in, in them. The most common way that we know of this or experience this, or the most obvious I would say is music. A skilled musician understands some things about music theory, whether or not they can articulate them verbally or not, but they, they know some things about, th- about music theory and they apply that when they're playing. So they know that they're going to play this sequence of notes. This sequence of individual notes will work over this group of notes that you're playing as a chord because you understand the theory of it, right? Mm-hmm. Amy Cooper understood exactly what kind of world she lived in. She knows that she lives in a world where Black people are considered criminal and regularly abused by the police and that white women are viewed as these damsels in distress that need to be protected. And Mm. she utilized that knowledge against him in that moment, right? Mm. That's what I mean, like, about this knowing. Like, she doesn't, she refuses to know it on the conscious level because if she were to admit that she knows that on the conscious level, she would actually also have to admit that she also knows that she's a racist. Yeah, <laughs> man. But she can't yeah. admit that, right? right. And, yeah, they have to carry it, man. It has to be carried in the body. I don't know where else it comes from. Like, when you hear people talk about, uh, I think, well, you and I were talking about this on the phone yesterday, last night. We were talking about, like, how people have been talking about racism just going to go away with the younger generation. And then you mm. see... On TikTok, you got these white kids who are uh, reenacting George Floyd's lynching. Yeah, I my own kids have come home with saying that white kids at school had said 
coon? Where did you right. hear coon? Where, where did right. you hear coon? Like, I, right. I just think that some of this stuff has to be in the blood. And I, I'm you know, <laughs> in I'm, the blood. I, I, you know, I, I, and I'm just, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an anthropologist, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm looking at history repeating itself in these ways and going, okay, there has to be something to all of this. And I think to your activist identity is it makes sense to me that that one would be so important. And I, and I find it tragic yeah. as someone who grew up in the Christian tradition mm-hmm. because the Christian, Christian and activist should not be mutually exclusive. But No, they it shouldn't. Has, but it has become that way in America, especially if you're Black. Yeah, I mean, throughout history, we've had plenty of Christian activists. So I, w- I remember I was interviewing N.T. Wright a couple years ago, um, for those who are not familiar with N.T. Wright, he's one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. Amazing. And so I was interviewing I, like just, I just casually say that, you know, like, uh, I'm talking to my, I'm talking to my guy, N.T. Wright. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to N.T. Wright and he was talking about his book about Paul and he referred to Paul as he was like, you know, Paul was like a political activist. Mm-hmm. N.T. Wright said this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just saying you can go as far back as that because Paul was definitely on a mission. You know, he spent his entire life trying to help people understand what it means to follow follow Jesus, right? In a world that was uh, built on em- emperor worship and empire worship and the misuse of power and all this kind of stuff. Chris, uh, there's been an activist strain to Christianity for literally centuries. Yeah. And I don't think, and here's the deal, right? Like these white conservative Christians who are so against Black Lives Matter and against uh, racial justice activism, many of them are actually, they, they might say that they're against activism and social justice warriors and stuff like that. But then when it comes to things like abortion, they have no problem with Christian activism. Exactly. You know, and know. sometimes the most radical forms of activism, like some some of these Christians, you know, they don't think they don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing for someone to burn down an abortion clinic or mm-hmm. or they'll be standing on the steps of the Capitol building with red tape over their mouths. And, you know, yeah. or or when we talk about human trafficking now, mm-hmm. many mm-hmm. of them I remember in 2016. Nobody had a problem with Christine Kane, you know, leading this movement to end uh, slavery and human trafficking all over the world. I think Louis Giglio has been involved with that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So when it comes to certain things that they don't think of as racialized, many of them have not had a problem with activism. It's only when you start talking about uh, black people being mm-hmm. free mm-hmm. from white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah. then they're like, oh, no, no, I don't think that, you know, Christians should be talking about politics and all this kind of stuff. Well, they also have no problem with how America was founded. They have no problem with the genocide of the indigenous people who are already here. They have no problems. We've had no problems in America for years and years and years, up until the last, you know, four or five years, celebrating Columbus Day. We've had right. no problem with the Boston Tea Party. We've had no problems with, with the violent uprising that led to the freedom of America. Mm-hmm. Every July Fourth, the fireworks are, are a celebration of the violence right. that led to America's "quote unquote" freedom. 
Man, and so that's a really interesting thing you bring up because in essence, what it boils down to is not activism as a practice, but blackness. Oh, yeah. I mean, the murder of millions of indigenous people is not even a part of the story for many Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, when when they taught me about Thanksgiving in elementary school, they never mentioned any massacres of indigenous no, people. I never heard that either. While I was we, was turkey. Just, you know, we were just drawing turkeys, just tracing our hands <laughs> off the turkeys and making some pilgrim hats and stuff like that. No one told us about that. We made you know? we we made Native American, you know, things with feathers and, uh-huh, and yeah, and, made headdresses yeah. and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? No, we we didn't talk about nobody dying. Mm-mm. You know, every year at Plymouth Rock, there there's a a gathering of lament. Mm. There's a lament vigil held there. Mm. You know, and that's not a part of the story. Now, but not 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 the way that many of us are taught it, you know. Mm. Yeah. And the violence of the American Revolution is something I mean, yeah, we all take it for granted that it was a good thing that these people mm-hmm. threw all that tea into Boston Harbor and that, you know, they they decided that they were going to go into war and that Patrick Henry's out here saying stuff like, give me liberty or give me death. Mm-hmm. When it comes yeah. to understanding that America could be to Black people what Great Britain was to the, the American colonies, oh, that's off limits. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to be the hero, man. So let, before we before we wrap, um, you have you're up to, you're always up to new stuff, and I know most recently you put out uh, a new song. So you want to talk about that? You want to talk about your new endeavors and, and where people can find one of my favorite songs right now um, that you just yeah, put out? Sure. Um, so we we just put out "How Long." It's a, it's a song about police brutality, and it tells the stories of Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland. I wrote it years ago. This year, we started preparing to release it on Juneteenth weeks ago. I mean, months ago, really. Mm. Had no idea how how timely it was going to be because while we were gearing up to release it, while we were t- we were already spreading the word about it, then George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, and this whole new wave of the Black Lives Matter movement erupted. And we had released snippets of the song before then, and then. I saw someone on Facebook say that they had they were singing they were singing the snippet of that song to themselves that week and I just started feeling like oh man like I was really trying to market this well and go through this whole process of releasing that would help it to reach more ears but people are really hurting right now and if they're singing this part of the song to encourage themselves then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we just going to have to put it out you know, like it may not, it may not get as many ears now if we release it early as it would have if we had waited. But we just can't treat this as though it's just a commodity. You know, yeah. like it's not about capitalism. So we're just gonna put it out and let let the people who need it have it so that they can sing along. Mm. Yeah, man. I know. I I went for a run. Um, listening to it after Ahmaud Arbery, and it it was very meaningful to yeah. me. Um, and and upon and seeing all of the, the the things that we've seen on TV, and you know, most recently with um, the Elijah 
a young man who yes mm-hmm. was a victim of police brutality i mean yeah it's a it's a meaningful song it's an important one and the tragic reality is that it's a song that we will need periodically yeah. as long as america is what she is today right so, no. well man thanks for coming on man i really appreciate you um expounding and teaching us and being a public theologian on existentialism. <laughs> <laughs> that was important work. So, I appreciate it. Well, uh, folks, thanks so much for listening. Thank you to all of you who review and rate the podcast, all of you who uh, have shared it with friends and loved ones. Uh, I so appreciate that. Thank you to Andre Henry for the music. The song you're listening to right now is called How Long? Um, and I'd like to thank all of you who are a Patreon, part of the Patreon community, um, your help and support is helping us to contend for a better world one conversation at a time he was alive for just a few days but he scared someone at the park with his little toy gun little baby boy and a threat even cry for him but we don't have Because we're upset And it won't stop because of our fear No, it won't stop until we repent of All the black bodies broken around here She was alive for just a few days Tore the world apart With the broke light on the back of her Won't stop because of our fear. No, we won't stop.
Yeah.